Are you an artist or a creative person? Do you paint, draw, etch, sculpt, pot, write, act, dance, sing, play, knit, sew, felt, crochet, weave, anything else? Great. Do you love it? Fantastic. But whether you use your creativity to make a living or just to enjoy expressing what's in your soul, do you sometimes find something is getting in the way of doing what you love? A creative block of some sort. I hear you. Welcome to Emotipod Series 2, Creative Blocks. A series of conversations with and for artists and creatives about the various inner and outer obstacles to making art. I'm Frances Butt, and I've been talking to friends, experts and expert friends about things we can struggle with when doing our arty thing, sometimes in secret shame. We share a few experiences, maybe offer the odd strategy, and if nothing else, show solidarity with you so that maybe you can feel less alone in your struggle. Because let's face it, making art isn't always easy. So let's talk about that because you're going to come up against at least one kind of obstacle, and you're going to have to tackle it, get past it, or just get used to it, if you're to thrive in your creative practice. In this first episode, we're going to talk about perfectionism. Are you a proud perfectionist, or a tortured one? Do you think of it as a virtue, or an affliction, or can it be both at once? I guess it depends on whether you think it just means really high standards or actual perfection. If your feeling of need for things to be perfect is so strong that it means you can't move on or you feel miserable with anything less, that can be a kind of tyranny that you inflict on yourself and possibly others. The godfather of soul, James Brown, would famously dock band members' pay for every imperfect note or miscue, and he noticed them all. One night, a bass player apparently ended up owing money rather than taking home wages. A finished movie usually uses about a tenth of the filmed footage, a ten-to-one ratio. For The Shining, Stanley Kubrick used less than 1%, 102-to-1. But, writes author and clinician Asa Don Brown, perfectionists are not all negative, miserable, unhappy and over-controlling individuals, or at least they don't think of themselves as such. Another movie director, James Cameron, is quoted as saying, People call me a perfectionist, but I'm not. I'm a rightist. I do something until it's right, and then I move on to the next thing. So there are different ideas of perfectionism. But let's see if we can get some more clarity on it all. Firstly, here's Helen Blenkinsop, who writes crime fiction under the name A.A. Abbott, with her perspective. I feel that I'm very much a perfectionist. Yes. And as a writer, I feel that is a good thing because readers do not want to read a book that's been put together in a slapdash way with no regard for grammar, spelling or variety of language. You know, readers want to read something interesting yes. that, that comes across as if somebody's paid some care and attention to Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. And also you get distracted by mistakes and, and poor grammar and things. It sort of gets in the way of enjoying the message. So yeah, there is a place for standards, I guess, yeah. yeah. I, I definitely agree. Yeah, yeah. 
And I think, of course, you can take perfectionism too far because every time I look at a book, even books that I wrote nearly 10 years ago, I will think, oh, I could have done that better. Oh, okay. I could have done that differently. Right. No, I hear you. I have the same with pieces of music uh, that I just cringe over listening back to, yeah. So that started out quite positively, but Helen acknowledged that perfectionism can become a problem. And there was some could-have-should-have creeping in. I think it's time to meet our resident expert for this series, psychotherapist Lisa Jones. You've very kindly offered to give a little bit of professional insight into the things like the definition of, for example, perfectionism, because there is a clinical definition as opposed to, I guess there's a spectrum mm -hmm. from yes, high standards, and that's very good, to something that gets very distressing. Yeah, absolutely. So shall I, shall I um, read you? So I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, yeah, the, clini the clinical yeah. definition. Posh quotes. We like posh, a posh yes, quote. Posh yeah, yeah. Quote. So the American Psychological Association defined perfectionism as the tendency to demand of others or of oneself an extremely high or even flawless level of performance in excess of what is required by the situation. Oh, you know, it's, and it's also it's very much associated with things like you know depression, anxiety, etc. Um, because of course, when if somebody is striving to be perfect all the time, which of course isn't actually possible, that it mm. doesn't exist. Um, mm. It's a huge amount of pressure and expectation yeah. uh, to have on themselves, and it, yeah. it very much kind of also coincides with kind of thought biases. So, um, so you're probably aware, and I bang on about this all the time, actually, to clients and people about paying real close attention to the language we're using and particularly the words must and should, right. because they're the words that really, really tie in with those feelings of perfectionism or those traits, whereby mm -hmm. if we're saying I must do this or I should have achieved X, for example, yeah, it puts this huge pressure and expectation on somebody yeah. to kind of achieve a certain standard, which they'll probably realistically never achieve because the standards right. they're setting are not realistic expectations. Yes, yes. And then we just get into these real patterns of kind of potentially, at its worst, like self-loathing and, and, you know, really destructive and harmful behaviours and thought patterns. So, yes, perfectionism can become a terrible affliction or, to a lesser degree, just a niggling anxiety that gets in the way of our creativity or of enjoying it. Here's artist Elizabeth Michalides. Because I want to make things not perfect, but the best that I can make them, I delay or, right. again, I'm a bit fearful. Can I do it? Will I do it properly? And that inhibits my starting something, mm. uh, which is wrong. But, um, yeah, and that maybe this is another question to ask, you know, the younger generation, how do they feel now because when I was at school I don't have any bad memories or anything but it was just normal to expect to do your best and I was very um diligent and hardworking. and I think that kind of it just carries into adulthood and of course once you do succeed and you get good grades then there's that pressure to continue do it all again yeah and that's it and that's where um this perfectionism issue I think comes in right yeah. It's fear of doing less than before. You know, I did well before, so I should keep that up. The question then arises because because you mentioned two different things there. One was doing your best, doing your very best. Yeah. And two was doing well. And what do you mean by well? Are they the same thing? I don't know that they are. Yes. I didn't, yeah, I didn't realise I'd said that. It is, it's interesting. Psychologically, I think the best that I can do 
is is a hundred percent. Do you see? Do you see what I mean? It's, it's, I do. We've got you've got an exam system in your head, really, with that. Yes. Like your exam marking system. That's that's right. That's what which it is. is presumably a throwback from school days. Probably. Where, yeah. This is yeah. the system that you learn. We all learn through, and then this has become some kind of standard. Who gets to? I mean, the other thing is that teachers marking your work, especially if it's artwork, yeah. is incredibly subjective. And they yeah. it might not be their cup of tea, and they give you sixty percent, or it might be absolutely up the street. They give you ninety five percent. Who's to know? Who's to say? Absolutely. Uh, did you do your very best? Is a bit more to the point, perhaps. Yeah. Then you have no questions to answer there. I mean, you couldn't have done more. Could you have done more? Then that okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're correct. But um, yeah, that's interesting as well because I did. I took art lessons and piano lessons, and so oh. it was a grading system. Yes. And even with art, in the early stages, everyone has to. You're marked the same. Can you draw something visibly yeah. representational? Yeah. Um, so those guidelines are clear, but you're quite right. Yeah, can you do your very best? And I think that's why we're looking. We're seeing a different grading system based more on coursework these days yes. than just this one final exam at the end of the year. Yeah, uh, yeah, which is better. That was interesting. That kind of self-marking scale going on. I asked Lisa Jones more about this, and these inner voices that we have with the shoulds and the musts and the not good enoughs and that sort of thing mm. where do we pick those things up from they come they come in early don't they and I think possibly our education system and our exam system and the the parent who is demanding of, mm-hmm, of a high mm-hmm. standard of the child or pressing them I, I remember somebody I know who'd got 98 percent in, mm. in an exam and I think the dad was joking but it wasn't received as a joke and it was, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where's the other 2%? Yeah. And that kind of thing. How yeah. awful is that? Mm. Uh, and I don't think it was entirely a joke. I think it was a half mm-hmm, joke. Mm-hmm. And that's that's going to go in deep, isn't it? So Absolutely. Yeah, so absolutely. Parents, what the language parents use, obviously that's so important as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, anyone in that kind of nurturing role, so whether it's mm. parents, caregivers, educators, even, you know, peers, friends, colleagues, depending on our age. Um, and often people say these things without meaning any malice or, they, you know, that it's well-intentioned. But like you say, it can land incredibly powerfully. And what people mm. often fail, or not fail, <laughs> just talk about failing, often um, <laughs> don't think about is especially when it comes to children and young people. Bear in mind, this is where those, those limiting beliefs come from. This is where it all stems from. It's from childhood. Yeah. Is that is how receptive that children are I mean their brains are like sponges so they might get a message like you just you know described yeah. and that sticks and they carry that and so I suppose two really important things to point out with perfectionism so it's on a continuum so some people to be fair everyone at some stage in their life will feel not good enough or that they could do better or they should achieve a certain standard with something right quite typical um but if you imagine it on a continuum then so you've got people that kind of experience that as a, as a I'm using quotation marks, normal uh, kind of feelings and thoughts to those at the other extreme where it completely overtakes their life. And it's an incredibly unhealthy. Um, yeah, paralyzing. I yeah, know. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so say it exists on this kind of continuum, but shame is always, always associated and always linked to kind of where it comes from at some stage, right. somebody has felt shame about something. So maybe in this example you've just given, 
it was said as a joke, maybe, or a half joke, where's the other 2%, but on the yeah. receiving end, there's a feeling of shame of, I have done something wrong. I have done something yeah. bad. I am inherently not okay. Yeah. And I have to be, must be, should be a certain way to seek approval. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's seeking approval and validation. So there's always yes. shame attached. And that to your, your sense of self-worth then is, yeah. is tied up with achievement only yeah. rather than you're just all right in your own right. Absolutely. Okay, so you have to keep yeah. doing something brilliantly in order to prove that your existence yes. is worthwhile. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. If you feel disapproved of, you'll either decide you're not going to bother because what's the point? You'll never be good enough. Or you'll strive to win that elusive approval. Either way, your sense of being good enough is based on external sources rather than your internal resources. I'm sure we all recognise the model of the keen student doing their best and trying to get everything right. But before we get too down on all education systems, let's hear some healthy examples of teaching. Two of my sisters, Maria Linneman and Tirka Linneman, happen to go to the Royal Academy of Music, where you might expect a demand for perfection. But here's Maria. John Gardner gave a lecture to all the first years and he put on a very old recording of Mussorgsky's Pictures of an Exhibition, and it was a Russian pianist, one of the world's best. It was a record that was really treasured by people who were studying this and who, who loved this piece, and a very old recording where they didn't edit. So he just played once through everything. And uh, there were one or two little mistakes there that didn't matter at all. And he, you know, sitting there as new students where you are thinking that you will have to strive for perfection and nothing else will do. He played these sections and he said, now you heard this and you heard that, but you heard the unique performance of this pianist. But there's never been another like it. And do these things matter? So a few said, no, no, it doesn't matter. The performance was incredible. And this is what he wanted to hear. And this is what he said. And I remember this. You are striving for wonderful performance, but perfection, you are not to have this at the front of your mind. Otherwise, you will never be able to play the performance that speaks to your audience and makes the piece live. You'll be so afraid of making a mistake. And now let's hear from Tirka. It was a case of, you know, getting better and better and aiming high, but it was never aiming for perfection. That's good. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine what that could be. You know, I wanted to play well. Mm. So you didn't torture yourself with that particular No, no, no. I mean, the place you could torture yourself with was yeah. um, scales and arpeggios and, and oh, all the other, yeah. other in-between things. A scale, it's mathematical, isn't it? Yes, it's right or it's wrong. It's yeah. right or it's wrong. There you go. <laughs> Whereas if you're playing a piece of music, oh. it's not right or it's wrong. Mm. I mean, the notes might be right or wrong, but your interpretation or your idea of, of music is yours. Yeah. And it may not be somebody else's. And the reverse, you know, somebody else's may not be yours, but they've played it correctly. Mm. So there's technical accuracy and musical interpretation, which are two different things. The extraordinary pianist Glenn Gould was a blisteringly brilliant technician, but he also felt the music so strongly he would sometimes sing along with his playing rather tunelessly in his recordings, which presented a problem for engineers and for some listeners. But the point is, technique alone 
does not make a great musician. You know, every time I hear these people, they, they just try and play faster because they oh. can. You know, if perfection is just being able to play faster, then mm. where's the artist in that? Mm. You know, the artist is at the, is the servant of the music. Mm. Whereas if you're, you know, if everybody's ogling at your phenomenal technique, then the artist yeah. is getting in the way of the music. Mm. I wonder what Gould would say about this, because I mean, he, his brain was so fast and his yes. technique had caught up with his brain. So he was yes. just faster than the, than most mortals really so I think so there was something very superhuman about you know and also yes. he was deeply tortured at the same time yes, by, yes, you know, yes, by yes, being was, so yeah. out of the normal oh I'd much rather be um mediocre <laughs> that's another episode oh I can't wait for that episode something I shine at <laughs> I really do as well but I digress aiming high yes mm. that's what it's all about and I think it also feeds into Perfectionism feeds into wider life so that if this isn't perfect and that isn't perfect, then the people around you start to suffer by not being your idea of what perfect is. And it's a tightness, isn't it? And a yes. intolerance yes. of anything less than X. Yeah, you're sort of in a lonely castle then, aren't you? <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. as, uh, you know, as an instrumental player, mm. how would you define, how could you possibly define perfection? Well, yeah, we could take some some famous examples of the greatest musicians and, and yes. people like Callas, who is so venerated, but was not the most beautiful voice and was not, you know, could sound ugly, actually. Mm. So that's not perfection. But something about no, the whole no, package, no. because it was so it was yeah alive. Exactly. Uh, it's the person as yeah. well. Exactly that. Yes, and maybe the apparent perfection that recording technology has made possible and that we've all become accustomed to, things like auto-tune, editing out mistakes, dropping in sections from different takes, has contributed to this expectation of perfection. Recording engineers have to work between correcting mistakes that will distract from our enjoyment and airbrushing the very life out of a performance. Anyway, back to Tierka, who went on to join the Halle Orchestra as a professional, had some years away from playing, and now plays in an amateur orchestra in Devon. So you've never suffered with perfectionism as regards to cello playing, or have you? No, no, because it's always been about playing well enough mm. to create the music. Yeah. You know, yeah. To, to be able to make music. That's great. Have you encountered other players who have suffered from that, that you've been thinking, oh, gosh, you poor thing? Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's a very high standard. Mm. That could be the case. And mm. certainly all the really good players at the academy who you thought they were going to go on to wizard things mm. would torture themselves right. and, and be, um, you know, looking over their shoulders at all the other oh. players. Ah, well, in terms of com competition, and yes. in case there was somebody yes. better than them. Oh, gosh, yes. there's all kinds yeah. of self-torture there, isn't there? Yes. Goodness yeah. me. But I, I think if you're an artist, you know there is no such thing as perfection in art. Yeah. By definition. You know it rationally, but I think emotionally you can really get in a knot with feeling as though you should. You know, there's this should word yeah. again i think there's yes. should comes a lot a lot uh, a lot of the uh the suffering that we, <laughs> that yeah. we inflict on ourselves is oh, should be yes. this should be this yeah. should be that um, yeah well certainly in you know in an amateur orchestra yeah i now feel 
tremendous guilt if I don't play well enough because I should be playing. Should be the one. I should be the one. Oh, yes. my goodness. Yeah. So that's interesting yeah. because in my mind, you are the one because you landed that gig in the that, profession in the orchestra job, yeah. yeah and I admired that about you always because it's certainly impressive it's an imp- impressive achievement in its own right sort of proof of your musicianship skills that you can never have taken away from you really no 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 it's true like winning a big a big sports medal or something it's a it's a gong yeah but what took me away from that was nothing to do with the music it was right. to do with my perfectionism in myself ah and I think I would call it on reflection emotional perfectionism oh right okay um and that that messed me up enough for me to to leave the profession and it was nothing to do with my playing really yeah an emotional perfectionism so how so, uh, being a person oh not a good enough person yes yeah I me okay yeah emotional perfectionism So you can be quite relaxed about not being perfect in one sphere, but hell-bent on it in another, and suffer badly from those not-good-enough feelings that are the very essence of self-destructive perfectionism. It's all based on feelings of shame that we try to fix by trying to achieve perfection. The thought is there that if we can just do that, we won't feel the shame. But as perfection in ourselves is impossible... It's a futile quest that only brings on more shame. Back to Lisa Jones. So what can we do when we have a lifetime of that kind of, well, a bit of programming from early uh, life, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which has become internalised and that has become cyclical thinking? So the first thing, and again, I can't emphasise this enough, they take practice, it takes patience. These are not things that we just learn overnight. So recognizing the thoughts first. So what are the words we're using? What's the thought bias? Is it a must or a should? Is it an overgeneralization? So recognizing the thoughts and then the bit that's really tricky, really, really tricky, and it does take constant work and practice, is learning to accept ourselves as we are, warts and all, the good, the bad, the ugly, and practice self-compassion. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And it's very easy for people to say, oh, well, just treat yourself with love and compassion. It's like, well, if it was that easy, we'd be doing it all the bloody time. So it's okay, great. But how do we do that? <laughs> right. Is there something slightly British about this? That we have a slight cynicism about, you know, take a dip in the river, you, and be your own best friend and all this, which is absolutely what we should be doing. But there's something, why do we find it so icky? What is it, stoicism? Stoic, after, yeah, rather than, stoic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's probably a whole other conversation, but a very British thing. That we, we know our culture is very much that stiff upper lip, just be yeah. stoic and get on with get it. Get on with just, it. You know, pull your socks <laughs> up and it's like, well, yeah. are you okay? Can you get up out of bed? Well, then crack on. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, all right, I'm fine. Uh, you know. Um, so Crying inside. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right, yeah, yeah. But I think that is a huge part of it. And then, of course, we live in a world very much nowadays where it's this I'm going to use the phrase toxic positivity which is this constant like constant messaging of just think positive it's another kind of perfectionism in a way isn't it only this will do and then you if you don't manage to achieve that you failed again failed again absolutely yeah Yeah, it's so unhelpful so so unhelpful so the difference between being compassionate with ourselves and kind of like just trying to use some sort of positive affirmation, for example, is doing it with kindness and mindfulness. And let's say I might be feeling really like I don't like myself. Maybe I'm mm. feeling that. 
and recognizing that with compassion and the self-kindness, which is kind of them saying things like, in this moment, I feel like I don't like myself. And that's okay. Yeah. It's okay to not feel amazing all the time. It's so I yeah. accept that I feel this way. So, it's so about you're not have... battling yourself so much if you're accepting that this is what you're thinking. Absolutely. So there's less, there's yeah. less of a battle there already. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so it's not, this is wrong and this is something else I can't do. I can't think positive. I can't, you know, love myself. <laughs> oh, crikey. You know, it's just very simply <laughs> recognizing it and accepting it. Yeah. So it might be, so, yeah, I feel really crap. Okay. What would be a more helpful thing for me to say to myself? You know, if yes. I could imagine an ideal nurturer, what would they be saying to me right now? And actually the more, and I know you know this, you know, the more we resist or push against something, the stronger that becomes and the more difficult it then becomes and the more all-consuming it becomes. So actually by yeah. learning to just recognise something and acknowledge it and accept it, yeah, we don't have to like it, but that's incredible. and that's why it takes practice because it's really difficult to accept those feelings that we're not comfortable with. <laughs> yeah, a lot of practice, a lot yeah, of practice. So yeah. in terms of perfectionism and trying to ease up on that you know we have a project uh, it could be a painting or a, or a piece of writing or you know in terms of creativity or a mm-hmm. or a performance where you forgot mm-hmm. your line mm-hmm. or you got your dance step wrong or, mm-hmm. or you played a bum note on your flute or whatever it is yeah that distress at not having been is there anything you could say uh, in terms of you know that moment in that that circumstance where you're actually dealing with the the thing you're trying to create that's not perfect. It's a, it's a really good question. So do you mean kind of right in the moment that something goes wrong, or do you mean afterwards? Yeah, either actually, either either in the moment or later when you're still beating yourself up, <laughs> feeling miserable for not having got that thing right it's yeah, amazing yeah. this this negative bias that mm-hmm. we played 9999 beautifully perfect notes and there was mm-hmm. one note and that's the mm-hmm. only one we remember so how do we let that go and just move on and laugh and accept mm. it's a um, really good question and it's, <laughs> and there's no simple straightforward answer for it yeah <laughs> there is no straightforward answer well any anybody who's in in the performing world whether that's you know music acting dancing what have you know that to use the classic phrase the show must go on you don't have time in the moment to dwell on it it's like oh bugger you know mess that up keep going keep going. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah live performance yeah. is easier because the moment is past yes exactly but with recording in particular or writing sending a book to the publishers and letting it go it's there forever what you've done is there forever absolutely you've got to come to terms with that imperfection if you come back to it later in some way so again coming back to acceptance you know letting something go and it's okay well I've done my best that's all I can do and that's enough just enough it is enough here's my friend and ex-bossa nova music partner Knut Stuver I mean you have to you have to be kind to yourself as well I mean you work hard but then you it's it's important to then. I mean, if you you know if you've done your best, then I think you have to allow yourself and, and others to live with the with the outcome. Mm. Uh, yeah, accepting the outcome when you've I done th- your best. Yeah. I think it's important to not have too many post mortems on it, mm. and, and then move on to something else. I mean, I've known people who kind of in after gigs they then kind of go through everything that went wrong and stuff, mm. and it's just not helpful. No. I mean, you do the work beforehand, and then you so you have to be kind to yourself as well. Yeah. Helen again. 
There is a danger. There's always yeah. a danger as a creative person that you think your work's just not good enough. Yeah. And the way that I get around that is to get a lot of help with my work. Mm. I'm sure I can't write a perfect book straight off the bat. I think it's a very rare writer who can, yes. to be honest. I, I get so much help with my work. Uh, I have a professional editor who will obviously advise on the plot, advise on the characters, advise on changes that Brilliant. are needed. And yeah. sometimes they're quite extensive changes. Yeah, it's like it's a very practical and reasonable thing to have, isn't it? So it's not all, the burden isn't all on you then, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, I mean, I know when when I started, I was quite hubristic and I thought, yeah, I can write the most brilliant psychological thriller ever. Who needs an editor? And oh. I soon learnt that everybody needs an editor. <laughs> A fresh pair of eyes. A fresh pair of eyes yeah. absolutely works wonders. Yeah. It's not just my editor either. I have up to 30 beta readers, so-called beta readers, people who will read a book when it's in draft. Yes. They might be specialists, for example. They might be musicians if I'm writing about a musician. Yeah. They might be DJs or policemen oh, yes, that's or right. prison yeah. officers or people who have been in prison, who understand drug culture. Because, I mean, every book has a, or most fiction books have a, a big thank you list, don't they, at the end? People have helped along the way with the making of it. Mine's always got a massive thank you <laughs> list. Yeah, so my process is that I will get a draft as good as I possibly can. Yes. And it won't be great, but by the time the beta readers have had a go at it and the editors had a go at it, mm. it will be in good shape and it would have a professional proofread before it's published as well. Right. And once it's been through proofreading and it's had all of that help with it, I, I tend to think, yes, okay, it's done. Let's push it out there. Okay, so you can let go of it at that point and say goodbye, wave goodbye to it. It's still hard though. Yeah. If somebody finds a mistake afterwards, I am mortified. Oh, yes. Luckily, as an independent writer and publisher, I can make my own changes if I absolutely have to, but I cannot bear to know that there's something wrong. So if change is needed, I will always make it. Okay. Well, if you can, I mean, if you can, then you would, wouldn't you? Indeed. If you can fix an error, then it's daft not to, unless you decide the error is actually a good thing for some reason. But Helen made an important point there, which was having help not having to shoulder the whole project entirely alone. Even solo performers need help from technicians, organisers, or if nothing else, just loved ones who believe in them to be at their best. So seek help, accept help, and appreciate the help. That's very healthy. And Tirka has another useful idea for the pot. In my 20s and 30s, mm. after I stopped playing... I channeled my perfectionism when, you know, when you've got little children and there's no such thing as perfect when you've got little children because the place is a tip and all the rest Too of it, right. yeah. um, into patchwork oh, yes. and cross-stitch. Mm. So those two things are, you know, immaculate. Yeah. You know, the cross is, is one colour and that's it. You know, not like tapestry where there's a sort of grey area and you can choose your colours and blend a bit more. But oh. with cross-stitch... It's this colour, and so you know it's going to be absolutely perfect. Oh, that's nice that you were able to channel it into something that you could attain some... It's a bit, yeah. like, a bit like arithmetic, isn't it? There is a right answer, and it is so satisfying when you get that's the only right answer it can be, and there's something so 
safe and secure about that. It makes that you feel is, better. It is it? absolutely yeah. that. Yes, it is. Yeah. But in terms of artistic creation, that's that's very difficult to have. I mean, did Hitchcock do that? Because he he used to uh, storyboard every frame practically, you know, the film. So everything right. was going to be as he had envisioned right. it. Right. So in that way, preparation, presumably, uh, yes. the degree yes. of preparation is is fundamental to yes to us getting as perfect to as a you project. Can get. Yeah. Yes. But that's not true to life, is it? <laughs> yeah. No. Life is what happens while you're making other plans. All right. You know? So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you could make your storyboard and think, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this with my life. Oh, goodness, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. That's the one. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's the one. I like that very much. Channeling your need for perfection, if you have one, safely into something that satisfies it. So you can take refuge in a little perfect something or other, when all around you is chaos, or you can't control things as you wish you could elsewhere. And this wouldn't have to be something that defines you as such. It could just be having a tidy environment, or cake decorating, or flower arranging, or puzzles. Anything, really, that delivers that hit of gratification. So, to recap, people mean different things when they use the word perfectionism and perfectionist. And some people are proud of using the label perfectionist. But there's a clear distinction between striving for excellence and a self-destructive pursuit of unattainable perfection. So it's more about an internal perception or belief than anything. So if a self-destructive inner voice keeps piping up and saying not good enough over and over, that's not any kind of statement of true fact. It's just a self-destructive inner voice saying not good enough, try again and again. If only you would just try again, maybe. And people become addicted to this hopeless quest that brings nothing but more shame and self-blame. So if you suffer from perfectionism misery, what can you do? Well, as Lisa mentioned, you can learn to notice the way you're thinking. You can maybe start taking on board the idea that your worth is not purely determined by your achievements. If your sense of self-worth depends on your achievements, it's easy to see why you'd want them to be brilliant. But what pressure is that putting on you? Isn't it just building on this cycle of shame? You are already a miracle of creation or evolution or both, without having to prove any damn thing. Finally, look out for different points of view about perfectionism and make up your own mind about where you stand. You can think about striving for excellence instead of perfection. You could be very daring and have a giggle doing something in a really slapdash way to see whether you can stand it. Or maybe you could find something that channels your need for perfection safely, like Tirka's satisfying cross-stitch. And don't forget that soliciting help, even just moral support, is always better than struggling on heroically, entirely alone. Whatever you do, always be as kind to yourself as you would to your dearest friend, because you deserve that. And, don't forget, for every flaw your masterpiece may have, there will be at least a thousand things that are superb about it. So remember to enjoy what's going well or has gone well as well. In the next episode, we'll be looking at a relative of perfectionism, imposter syndrome. So until then, keep creating what you love creating because you love it. You don't really need any other reason.